This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week has been in town for almost a year. She's an educator, a writer, a researcher. Most importantly, for our purposes here, she's the director of the IU Cinema, meaning she loves movies. Her name, Alicia Cosma. Alicia, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, great. So you arrived late last year because you got the gig as the director here. Where did you come from? So I came from Washington College. It's a small liberal arts school on the eastern shore of Maryland. And I was the chair of the communication and media studies program there. Well, that's the kind of thing you've been studying pretty much all your late teen and adult life is communications and media, no? Absolutely. A lot of your research has had to do with labor in the media, the people who actually work in media. I, as you said, a lot of my research does focus on the labor of making media. More often than not, it focuses on women's labor in making media. But one of the things that has always interested me is the idea of, quote, movie magic, the sense that movies just appear magically on our home television screen, in our theaters, on, you know, tiny screens in front of us, on planes. And we're never taught really about all the work, all the creativity, all the labor, all the craft, all the professionalism that goes into making film. And as a result, we tend to think like popularly of film as, you know, the genius work of one or two individual people that just springs forth fully formed from someone's head, you know, and the actors on the screen and the actors on the screen. Right. And that ends up entertaining us. But film is one of the most collaborative art forms you have. And that's what makes it so interesting to me is that hundreds of people make a movie. But we never talk about those hundreds of people. We never talk about all the work that goes into something. And for me, really being able to articulate all the work in all the different ways that people can contribute to the film industry, it makes actually working in the film industry much more accessible, right? There's only a certain number of film directors that are ever going to exist in the world. There's only one director on a film. You know, there's only a certain number of actors that are ever going to be in a movie. But for people who are invested in contributing to film and to film culture, there are a myriad of ways to do that because hundreds of people work together to make a film. And so for me, talking about the issues around media labor and around who is actually putting together these wonderful things that we're engaging with is a way of making this industry more accessible to more people and a much more kind of broad roster of people who get to work in film. Because once we know what it takes to put a film together, we can find our own paths into the movie making industry, which for many people, particularly many young people who are really invested in film, it can be super overwhelming to say, well, I'm going to grow up and be a director. I mean, cool. There's like 200 directors in the world. Right. (laughs) You know, it's a pretty small, the odds are pretty small. 
if you want to be working in the industry and like, you know, as a professional who's making a living doing this, that doesn't mean there aren't just a zillion other ways to contribute creatively. Have you ever worked on a movie? I've done a little bit and it's been on Friends Productions. It's really just been as, as helping out. I can admit this now. I couldn't when I was like much younger. I'm really good at explaining things. I'm really good at teaching things. I'm not great with my hands. The process, <laughs> <laughs> the process of translating the ideas or the vision into the practical thing, into the craft, it's just not my skill set. In fact, I remember when I was an undergraduate student, we had to take a production class, which anyone who's interested in film should know the critical side, the historical side, and the practical side. So I was right. so thankful that we had to take the production class. I worked with a friend and I would explain to him exactly what I thought the thing should look like and that he would actually be able to materialize it on screen. Uh -huh. I just am missing that little part in between. <laughs> well, you, that means you have to work with other people. And as you say, this is a collaborative endeavor. Absolutely. Speaking of the people who work on movies, do women get a fair shake? Do they get jobs? Do they get paid? No. Oh. I mean, I wish I had a better answer for you, but no, they really don't. Even today? Yeah, unfortunately, even today. So much of the employment system in Hollywood is really set up to exclude rather than include. And these employment structures and hiring structures have just been built up over time to a, a place where it's really, really difficult for women to not just succeed in the way that they want to in the film industry, but just have basic employment that can pay their bills and put a roof over their head, you know, and buy groceries. It is still exceedingly rare. We tend to talk about women's employment in the film industry like when we think about directors because directors are the most high profile really besides actors they're the most high profile position in the film industry everyone knows what a film director does even if they don't really know what a film director does yeah you know women still only make up like four percent of, of film directors just four percent just four percent and if you're talking about women of color that's two percent but if you, if you drill down even deeper, cinematographers, women are 2% of cinematographers. They're like tenths of percentage of people who work on special effects. So a huge variety of occupations in the film industry, women want to work in them. It's not just the quote unquote high profile positions like writer or director. And I'm know. willing to bet that the vast majority of positions in the craft unions are male. Yes, certainly. Unless you're talking about craft unions that are seen as like, quote unquote, traditionally feminine, like costuming yeah. and hair and makeup. But if you're talking about, you know, craft services like electricians, stunts, special effects, they're overwhelmingly male. In some cases, certainly in, in the special effects world, it wasn't until recently that there was even enough women to be like measured in a statistically relevant way. And it's not because women don't want these jobs. They absolutely do. They are training. They are working. They are they are trying to make it, you know, in the system. But there are so many barriers that oh. have just 
compounded over time that make it just difficult for them to get their foot in the door. Because the way Hollywood works for the most part is that to get a, to get a job, you need to know somebody who you worked with uh-huh. on a previous, on a previous job. Right. So, <laughs> so how about the person who has no previous job? That's it. So it's, it becomes a real, it becomes a real catch, a real catch 22. Alicia Cosma, the director of the IU cinema has the stuff and the background to make these observations. She has co-edited uh, a couple of books on media and labor. She also has written a couple of books, Alicia. Well, one so far, yeah. One one <laughs> is coming out this fall. What month is that? It's coming out in October. That is Radical X, The Labor of Filmmaking and the Cinema of Stephanie Rothman. Yeah. Who I'm really excited about because I knew nothing about her. And in researching you, I found out about her. She was an assistant to Roger Corman, for God's sake. She was. And she's one of your favorites. She, Yeah, she really is. Stephanie is an amazing uh, director who has been really kind of underknown and underscreened um, until fairly recently. So as you mentioned, she started off her career as an assistant for Roger Corman. Right out of college. Right out of college, actually, um, right out of USC Film School, where she was the first woman to ever win the Directors Guild Student Filmmaking Award. Uh Uh-huh. She started working for Corman. Corman said, you know, he saw her work and there was no way he couldn't hire her. And she started really as kind of a a catch-all assistant for everything. She would direct some second unit pieces. She was doing uh, production assistance, location scouting, producing. and Eventually, I say directing, kind of, but her first film for Corman was something that was called like a quote, Iron Curtain salvage job. They are like films that were purchased from countries formerly that were behind the Iron Curtain. And (laughs) Corman would buy them really cheaply and just recut the footage into a new film and dub it in English (laughs) (laughs) and release them. So it cost him nothing. You know, they made money at the drive-ins for, you know, a week or two, and then he could use that money to finance his next set of films. So the first film that she did for Corman is one of those. It's called um, Bloodbath. It's also called Track of the Vampire. She, she really doesn't consider it a film she directed because all she did was like re-edit a bunch of stuff and like right. shoot a couple pickups here and there. But that's how she got started with him and then um, would eventually go on to make several several more of her own films that she and her husband, Charles Schwartz, they would write together. She directed and he produced. They formed a production company eventually. They did with, uh, they were part of two new uh, production ventures, actually. The first with Corman. Corman left uh, American International Pictures, where he was working, and Rothman and Swartz were working with him there. And he formed his, um, a new company called New World, which still exists. And he brought Stephanie and and Charles with him. And then after a couple of years at New World, they left very amicably, like no ill will with Corman, but they left to co-form dimension pictures with a another co-worker um from new world uh larry woolner 
So yeah, no. they were part, they were on the ground floor of two different independent uh, film studios in the 1970s. And Stephanie was a vice president at Dimension, making her one of the only women executives working at a studio in Hollywood at the time. Now, the movies that Corman and Stephanie made can be described as exploitation movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, some of the titles that she worked on Student Nurses, mm -hmm. Terminal Island, It's a Bikini World, That's a great movie. The Velvet Vampire, yeah. Group Marriage, <laughs> <laughs> The Working Girls. These are the kind of movies that she worked on. And here's a quote that I dug up about her. Tell me what you think about this. Okay. Toward the end of her career, she was quoted as saying, I was never happy making exploitation movies, but she yeah. had to. She had to. It, it's funny. She uh, she says that she didn't realize she was making exploitation films until the student nurses came out and she read a review in Variety that called it an exploitation film. And she was like, <laughs> oh, I guess I make exploitation films. That's she where never, I am. Yeah. She never wanted to work in exploitation. Her goal was always to work in the mainstream Hollywood filmmaking industry. Now, before we go on, tell us what exploitation movies are. So exploitation movies have a pretty long history in Hollywood. They've existed really since kind of the beginning, although many scholars trace like classical exploitation, the first classical exploitation film to 1919. Oh. Ste Stephanie worked in what I call second wave exploitation, which is in the it's the 1960s through the 1980s. So different time periods of exploitation kind of have different definitions, but broadly we can talk about exploitation films as being independently made films with small budgets, with usually non-professional or first-time actors, with first-time creators that are made to as cheaply as possible <laughs> to make as much money back as possible yeah. um, and to target really specific demographics. So the early like classical exploitation films, like in the 19 teens and 20s, these were films that were really focused on um, kind of sensationalism and showing like taboo subjects that you couldn't normally see. If you have Drug ever taking and sex, yeah, I like assume. if you've ever heard of the film Reefer Madness, yes, yeah, that's like a classic early exploitation film. They would also be films that would like purport to be educational about like. <laughs> you know, um, sexually transmitted infections, but it would really just be an excuse to talk about sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. Yeah, but the films that Stephanie made in this kind of, the the second phase of exploitation filmmaking, they were, they were different. They were really more focused on like contemporary cultural fads. So uh -huh. the hippie movement and rock and roll and free love and, you know the kind of new wave of drug taking yeah. and prog progressive politics and, and all of that stuff. So there are some similarities across like waves of exploitation filmmaking. What's different about the, the second wave exploitation films that Stephanie was making is that they're much more embedded in a traditional type of Hollywood filmmaking than the earlier stuff. Some early like exploitation films from the teens would literally just be like a bunch of clips spliced together from like medical videos that would show you like naked bodies or babies being born or things you couldn't see anywhere else. Huh. Second wave exploitation 
filmmaking, I mean, not all of it, <laughs> a lot of it, and certainly Rothman's films, they're, it's just like standard Hollywood filmmaking. It's just like much cheaper budgets, much different storylines, and quite frankly, like a, a much different caliber of, of acting talent in, in the films. One of the things I also learned, Alicia Cosma, was that Stephanie liked to have female leads. She loved it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was kind of like written into her filmmaking practice was the idea that, you know, if exploitation was the only place she could work, because quite frankly, it was the only place that would hire women at the time, Roger Corman believed in talent above anything else. If you were good, if you could make a good movie that people liked, it made money and you could bring that movie in under budget and on time. He didn't care if you had never made a movie before, if you had made 75 movies before or who you were, he would, you were good for business essentially. And so she really did get trapped in this cycle because I mean, she didn't want to be making these films, but it was really, but she wanted to be making films. So this was her only opportunity. Yeah there's this kind of exploitation formula that she would have to include, which would be like sex, nudity, and violence. So in some way, (laughs) shape, or form, the films had to have sex, nudity, or violence. Well, Rothman's a really ideological person. She's very progressive. And she was like, okay, if I have to include these things, I'll include them, but I'll include them the way I want to include them. Uh And I'm, as long as these elements are in the film, she pretty much had carte blanche to do whatever she wanted. So if she had to include nudity where most exploitation films would have women being naked, she would have men right. being naked. Think of Russ Meyer, right? Yeah, absolutely. She was like the anti-Russ Meyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if there had to be violence, it would be, um, it wouldn't be gratuitous. So she was, one of her like guidelines was that she would never show violence without showing actually what the impacts of violence were. Ah. She never got like consequence-free violence. Uh-huh. You know, if women were going to be naked, then men were going to be naked too. At least it was going to be equitable. And one of the ways that she really infused her own like politics and her own ethics into her filmmaking was making women, foregrounding women and women's stories in the films that she was telling. And so, and in ways that weren't like gratuitous, in ways that weren't pandering, in real ways. I mean, what drew me to her films is that when you watch them, they're not, it's not an experience where you're like, Oh, I I like this film, but I feel like I shouldn't. Uh So I have to figure out like how, why it's okay for me to like it. They're just good movies. Yeah. They're just good movies. And it's like one of the things that makes her film so accessible. Every time I would show one of her films, like in a theater or to students or something, they'd be like, well, that movie was great. And I never would have watched it because there's such a pejorative connotation to saying, oh, it's an exploitation film. Yeah, I mean, they're exploitation films. They were certainly made within the exploitation industry. And there are certainly hallmarks of exploitation film, you know, in what she's doing, you know, from kind of production restraints. But they're just good and interesting movies. Now, people who love movies can talk about movies all day long. And I wish we had 24 hours on this show, but we don't. So we're going to squeeze some information in here. The IU Cinema, of which 
Alicia Cosma is uh, the now going on her second year or at least second season mm-hmm. director. She came aboard last fall, 2021. The IU Cinema has been in business since 1941, for goodness sakes. And that surprised me. And it would you perhaps show films by the likes of people like Roger Corman or Stephanie Rothman? Yeah, well, I use cinema as a cinema has only been around for the last 10 years. So the space that I use cinema is in right. is the former like theatrical auditorium yes. of I use campus. And it's where student student plays were put on for years. And then it went dormant when the new theater building was built. And then in um, 2010, it started the process of being converted into a theatrical cinema. Yeah. And I can tell you, Roger Corman has been a guest of IU Cinema <laughs> in the past. And not um, too long ago, I don't think. It was not too long ago. So... Yes, absolutely. We will show those films. I'm very much hoping to bring Stephanie Rothman as a guest to the cinema and show some of her films because she's still alive. She is. She is. And she's in excellent health. So I'm really hoping I'm really hoping we can make it work. Now, Um, uh, uh, Indiana University has a gigantic archival film collection. Correct. How does that benefit you? Well, one of the nice things about the archival film collection is that it gives uh, IU Cinema an edge that other cinemas anywhere in the world don't have, is that we have access to stuff that nobody else has access to. There is a world of film history at our fingertips, and it just is some of the most interesting and creative work that you can find, and you can't find it anywhere other than here. In fact, one of our um, recurring programs that we do every year is called City Lights, are films that are programmed from the Bradley collection that's held at the Lilly Library. We often program from the collection at the Black Film Center and Archive. We'll have some of those prints hap- coming up in, in our, in our um, fall season, in our spring season as well. It really just provides a an unparalleled like access to film history. One of the lovely things about the archives here too is that it's not just filmic materials. So for example, we are doing a programmer with, uh, excuse me, we are doing a series with a guest programmer this fall. Her name is Maya Cade. Uh She is programming a series called Home is Where the Heart Is, Black Films Exploration of Home. And working in conjunction with the Black Film Center and Archive here on campus, we are putting together a collection of non-filmic material that relates to her program. So it's not just films that are held in these collections, but it's scripts and posters, costumes, all types of ephemera related to the film industry that, and that will be displaying, um, you know, a good, a good chunk of it in our lower lobby uh, display area throughout September for this film series. So it 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 really is, I said robust before, and it really is robust because it's not just filmic material. It's all kinds of material related to the production of film um, that, again, gives you this 360 degree view of film culture and the impact that it can have and the ways that people participate in it. Now, if someone wants to find out when the next movie is going to be, 
how do they do it? Well, that information is always updated on our website and on our social media pages. I can tell you our fall programming season starts August 18th. Uh We are actually not showing films this summer because we're doing some work inside the cinema. We're getting a new screen, we're updating our lighting, all kinds of fun stuff to make sure that the viewing experience in IU Cinema is absolutely unparalleled to any viewing experience that you can have anywhere else. But we'll be up and running again starting August 18th. So our website, which is cinema.indiana.edu, or any of our social media profiles, which are all at IU Cinema, We'll always give you the most up-to-date information on what's showing, what's coming up, and how you can buy tickets. You know, Alicia, in the past, some of the big names who've made appearances here at uh, Indiana University and the IU Cinema in Bloomington, Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. Kevin Klein, George Takei, Glenn Close. How about Jonathan Banks uh, from uh, uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul? Absolutely. Werner Herzog. How about that? Personal favorite. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So are you involved involved in digging people up like that for future appearances? Absolutely. Now that many, most people feel comfortable traveling again. We are in process of bring of starting to bring guests back into the cinema. Um, we're really excited about it. Uh, I won't jinx it by saying <laughs> what's happening until things are confirmed. Okay. But yeah, uh, it's it, it's something that we're we're really excited about, um, and it's something that uh, you know we're we're committed to. IU Cinema has a fantastic history in being able to provide access to some of our greatest like contributors to film and filmmaking and film form, both for the community and for our students. That is something um, that will never change about IU Cinema. And we're very committed to making sure that happens. So if you want to learn more about what's going to be on the fall program, what's coming up in the future that we can't talk about just yet because we don't (laughs) want to jinx it, go to cinema at Indiana. You should go to our website, which is cinema.indiana.edu. Once you're on the website, you can also subscribe to our weekly now showing newsletter. So it'll tell you everything that's coming up and you can follow us on social media. So on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at IU Cinema. What a fun job you must have. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's busy. But the busyness is is balanced out by how joyful it is being able to do this and being able to bring film and film history and film professionals to the Indiana University campus and the Bloomington community. Again, Alicia Cosma, I wish we had hours and hours and hours. We don't. We have a half hour. (laughs) Our guest has been Alicia Cosma, educator, writer, researcher the director of the IU Cinema. The season's coming up in August, so get ready for some fabulous movies and sort of like a museum of film you'll be offering. Absolutely, yeah. So we're, you. thank you for having me, Michael. This has been great. Looking forward to getting everyone back in the cinema, back to seeing movies in mid-August and experiencing everything 
that the wide collection of Indiana University cinema and Indiana University archives has to offer. Thank you.